0: general theme, happiness is, for about eight weeks we'll be dealing with scriptures that talk about the abundant life, how to really be happy. Snoopy thinks he knows how, and Lucy and Linus, the blanket or whatever, but there's something deeper and more meaningful than that. This morning, happiness is the abundant life. One of the translations of John 10:10 goes like this. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. That last line is a beautiful line. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. There are what we understand two basic kinds of life, vegetable and animal, The vegetable life deals with trees, flowers, and so on. The animal or human life we all possess. But there are not too many who understand that there is a third kind of life which is most important to us, and that is spiritual life. The purpose of Christ coming into the world was that of bringing to us and bestowing upon us the great gift of spiritual life. It is spoken of by Jesus as not just life, but abundant life, plus beyond the kind of life. Now, what's the difference between life and abundant life? I think we could picture it in terms of a garden or of a yard. I know over a couple years ago when we came here and bought a house, the yard was not in and we had to put one in. And I saw some of the plants doing quite well. You didn't really have to worry about them very much. They seemed to be prospering and growing. But there were others that you questioned. They were alive, but they didn't have abundant life. You had to give them extra care. You wanted to water them more than the others. You were concerned about them when you went to bed at night and when you got up in the morning. you understand what I mean? Have you had that kind of experience... Both had life, but some had abundant, and some just were alive. Now, the spiritual realm holds the same truth. Everyone who names the name of Christ has life. But not every Christian is enjoying the abundant, abounding, full life which Christ now lives to give. And that is my concern as a believer as a pastor, that people learn to know the abundant, abounding life that Jesus Christ came to give. Now, there are some who, when during a song like we have just heard, would have difficulty handling that because they have been brought up to believe that on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you come in very sad looking and you sit down very solemnly and sedately and you don't do anything out of order, you never sneeze in the wrong place, you would never dare say, Hallelujah! Because you just don't do that at 11 o'clock in the morning. I guess they believe that that you have to get up in the morning on Sunday, which is hard enough, and so while you're getting ready, and you make that horrible trip to church, and you walk in, and you see all of these people, and you have just had to kind of make your way into the parking lot through a maze of cars and through the lobby, through a maze of people, the appropriate thing is to come in very sadly and forlornly and sit down very dejectedly and endure religion. (laughs) Now that is what I am led to believe by some. I was given a tape this week to listen to by some folk who have been members of another church and they're, they're troubled about their church, and they wanted me to listen to the tape of last Sunday. And I'll tell you, indeed, if I had to sit through some things that some people have to sit through, I suppose I would look a little dejected and a little bit forlorn. But that is not the way King Jesus meant it to be. Just in case you didn't know, I wanted to tell you that. We have life, victorious life. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is just as appropriate on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock to clap your hands and to smile and to shout if you feel like it as it is on Sunday night at 6 o'clock. The Lord understands it just as much in the morning as he does in the evening. It doesn't matter to him. Abundant life is 24 hours a day in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe it is his will and it is his purpose for Capital Christian Center to enjoy abundant life. Happiness is the abundant life. Now, let's look at some facts about the abundant life. Two basic things. Number one, it's normal. Number two, it's now. First of all, it's normal. It was not meant to be the abnormal experience of Christians. God's desire and provision for every believer is fullness of life. The normal life of God's children is happiness, is joy, is peace, is fullness. It is not abnormal, it is not unusual, it is not to be considered something that just a few have, but it is to be for everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's normal. Secondly, it's now. I've had people come to me and say with very, very reverential tones, oh, how wonderful it's going to be when we get to go to heaven and enjoy abundant life. In heaven, everything will be so wonderful. It will be so marvelous, and we will know life in its fullness. In heaven, I can't wait to get to heaven. Poor people. The abundant life is to be enjoyed now. What Jesus was speaking of in our text was not something for the next life. It was something for this life. Right now, when we die, it's true that we're going to enter into a fuller life altogether because we're going to have new bodies, we're going to have new understanding, we're going to have new everything in that day. But now, Jesus says, enjoy, participate in, enjoy a full, abounding life through him who came to give that kind of life. It is not something you wait for. It's not something that is pie in the sky. It is something that you have now. You enjoy it now. It's not dull. It's not dry. It's not desultory. It's vital. It's energy. It's exhilaration. It's power. It's life that can change anybody, anytime, anywhere. That's John 10, 10, the abundant life text. Of the Bible. Now, I ask you this morning as you sit in church or as you listen to this by tape whether or not you feel at this moment you have that kind of life. Or are you just putting up with religion? Are you just putting up with salvation? Are you just waiting for heaven to come? If so, then you've got a problem. Because Jesus Christ said, I have come that you might have life in all its fullness. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I come that you might have life in its fullness. That's his purpose. That's his desire. That's his wish. That's his intent. And it can be yours now. I like the attitude of a woman who was taking her first plane ride. She had this kind of life. She had experienced Jesus Christ in the now. And though she was frightened as she sat in that plane that day and looked at her seatmate and said to him, do you think we'll get there all right? And he assured her by saying, yes, I think we will. Only a few minutes later to have the captain of the plane come on the intercom and say, friends, I'm sorry to announce that we've lost one of our four engines. But don't be disturbed. We can land well with the three we have left. And for assurance, the captain added, I'd like you to know that even though we only have three engines, there are four Methodist bishops on board. And this woman, full of life in the now, turned to her seatmate and said, I'd rather have four engines than three bishops. (laughs) You just handle things when you have that kind of life. You're never down under. You're always up on top. And Jesus Christ is living his life out through that kind of person. It is in the now. Now, the second major factor that we need to consider in happiness is the abundant life is the characteristics of this life. And where do we find out those characteristics? It's not by looking at your pastor. It's not by looking at Billy Graham or some other person. It is by looking to the one who spoke those words, the Lord Jesus Christ. How could Jesus say... I have come to give you abundant life if he himself had not experienced that life. The fact of the matter is he had experienced it and through the Gospels we learn what that life is. And there are seven things that I have seen in the Gospels that would be well for you to write down. Or if you don't like to write, take a moment after service and register for a tape. Tapes are made of all of our messages and it's available to you. First of all, Jesus Christ had a life well-pleasing to the Father. For 33 years, Jesus lived a life wholly pleasing to God, without exception, wholly pleasing to God. In his baptism in Matthew 3, 17, God spoke from heaven and said for all to hear, This is my beloved Son, and I am wonderfully pleased with him. That's quite a statement. In John 8, 29, Jesus himself said, I always do those things that are pleasing to the Father. You and I can never live a life that is pleasing to God. Did you know that? So many come to me and say, oh, I have failed. I just can't seem to live a life that is pleasing to God. And normally I say, you're right. You're absolutely right. None of us can. I can't. Jesus couldn't. You can't. It's impossible. But the life of Jesus is pleasing to the Father so that when that life fills us, God is then well pleased with us. It is as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it is not I that liveth. But Christ that liveth in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can't do it in yourself, sir. Lady, you can't do it in yourself. It is as Jesus Christ comes in and he lives his life through you that you can say, I live a life well-pleasing to the Father. That's what we learn by examining the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived a life well, pleasing to the Father, so as he lives through us, it's possible for us to do the same. Isn't that encouraging? Secondly, I learned by the Gospels that he lived a life of utter dependence upon the Father. Notice the amazing statement in John 8, 28. Jesus said, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. A life of utter dependence upon the Father. Then the epistles that were written to the church by Paul and Peter and others bring to us the importance of this fact. Colossians 3 4. Paul said, Christ is our life. Galatians 2 20, which I've quoted. It's Christ that liveth in us. There is the secret of New Testament Christianity. There is the secret of abundant life, a life of utter dependence upon the Father. So, we do not come on a Sunday morning for one hour and say, that's enough. I can just forgive it now until next Sunday. No way. You have to live every moment of every day of every year with an utter dependence upon God. None of us are strong enough to go through this world depending on ourselves. The devil has what he calls temptation, and he throws that temptation in the pathway of every believer. But James says it's no sin to be tempted. The sin comes when we yield to that temptation, when we open the door of our mind and of our heart and let it in. That's the sin, but no man sins when he is tempted. We can please the Father by depending upon the Father in that moment of temptation and putting up a guard against the temptation of the enemy. Jesus did it, and so can we. Thirdly, he lived a life of complete submission to the will of the Father. Totally submitted. Psalm 47 in prophetic form says, I have come just as all the prophets foretold. And I delight to do your will, my God, for your law is written upon my heart. Now this is a reference in the Psalms about Jesus. He delighted to do the will of God because the law of God was written on his heart. We have gone through the series on the Ten Commandments recently, and I told you then that it was an impossibility to keep the commandments, by yourself, that you had to have a relationship with God and have those commandments literally written on your heart. And that's what Jesus said. I have come to do your will and your law is written on my heart. And in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood we see this coming to its peak when he said, Father, if you are willing, please take away this cup of horror from me. But I want your will, not mine. Now it would have been easy for him to succumb to the flesh, to escape the horror of Gethsemane and of Calvary, but in the Psalms it was prophesied that he had come to do the will of God. And now in the Gospels he shows that commitment. By praying, oh God, if you will, take it from me. But I want your will, not mine. Now what do I encounter as a pastor? I encounter so often the other side. Where we say to God, either openly or not so open, I want my will. I want to do it my way. I know what the Bible says, but I've got to be an exception. I want to do it my way, I want my thing, I want it, Lord, now, and I'm sorry, please excuse me. No wonder we don't have the abundant life. No matter and no wonder that we are not experiencing what Jesus experienced in his pilgrimage. We have to determine to submit to the will of the Father, and sometimes it's going to be painful. Sometimes it's going to hurt. Sometimes it's going to rub us the wrong way but it's always right because the Father knows what's right for you and for me. And Jesus submitted himself totally and completely to that position. Fourth, he lived a life of moment-by-moment fellowship with God. He was constantly in touch with his Father. There was not a cloud of sin or self between until he was made sin on the cross for us. And that's what caused him to cry in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never felt sin before. It had never passed into his body or through his spirit before. But on that cross, he took all your sin and all my sin, and he had to cry out from the depths of his being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 It says that God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. Isn't that something? This is the abundant life, a life of constant, intimate fellowship with God. He took our sin and he pours his goodness into us. When I was in Jerusalem a few days ago, in the mosque on the top of Mount Moriah, the Moslem Mosque, the guide took me over into a corner of the mosque where there was a little alcove, and kneeling on the floor was an aged man. And the guide told me that this man had been his teacher. He told me that this gentleman gave 12 hours a day in prayer and meditation. And there he was, in his little alcove going through his forms of religion and meditation. He looked up and greeted me and then went back to his meditation. But in that place I could not help but feel the darkness. I could not help but feel the lack of life and abundance that I read about in John 10.10. And it hit me as I stood there that day of the mistake of so many people on earth who believe that it is imperative in order to be spiritual to go into a monastery somewhere or up into a mountain somewhere or into a closet somewhere and there, and there only can we have fellowship with God. Now it is important that we have those times with God, but it is not practical to believe that we can be light in this world and salt to this earth if we spend all of our time in the alcove somewhere or up on the mountaintop somewhere. Jesus walked where sinners walked. Jesus took the life of the Father with him into the marketplace. And I believe that's his will for every believer, that we have a moment-by-moment fellowship with God that affects the society of which we are a part. That is God's desire And thank God we can have that touch, we can have that anointing, we can have that spirit living within us if we will but experience the effect of Jesus and his relationship with the Father, which was moment by moment by moment by moment, whether he was on the other side of the Galilee or on the Galilee or in the marketplace. For in a sinner's house, the Spirit of God worked through him to bring life to those that he was ministering unto. Moment by moment, what we receive in this place today should go with us and touch all we meet through the week. A moment-by-moment fellowship with God. Intimate relationship. The fifth thing I see in the life of Jesus in the Gospels is a life of constant victory over sin and the devil. You can search through the Gospels And never once in those 33 years did our Lord yield to sin or to the devil. He was tempted in all points like as we are, but he was always without sin. The Jewish leaders were so troubled by that. In John 8, 46, Jesus said to them, Which of you can truthfully accuse me of one single sin? No one, he said. And since I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe in me? Hebrews 4, 15 picks the theme up. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses since he had the same temptations we do, though he never once gave way to them and sinned. Aren't you thankful for a Savior like that? When speaking of the vicarious suffering of Jesus Christ, Peter said, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. This is the life he offers to us, a life that is triumphant a life that is victorious, overcoming sin and overcoming Satan. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, tells us that they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It can be on a day-by-day basis, hour-by-hour basis. There is nothing that the devil can throw against us that we cannot overcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus showed us that a life of constant victory over sin and the devil. Six, the life of abundant peace and joy. It was Jesus on the eve of the cross, on the eve of his suffering, that he said, my peace I give unto you. My peace I give unto you. It was Jesus who spoke in John 15, and John 17, 13 of my joy before the cross of shame, bitter shame and suffering. Jesus spoke of his peace, and he spoke of his joy. Now today in theological circles, we have some very interesting definitions of Scripture and the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was talking to Peter and his disciples. You remember, and he said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter came back with his great testimony, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But one of the modern approaches to Matthew 16, 15, and 16 goes like this, and Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? You are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the charisma manifested in conflict and decision in the humanizing process. And Jesus answered and said, what? No wonder there's no peace and no wonder there's no joy when we have taken such a magnificent statement as thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you are my Savior and have complicated it with charismas and manifestations so-called and have forgotten that he is a Savior and we are sinners and when the two get together, there is life and overcoming power. Hallelujah. God's will for you today is His peace and His joy. That's the kind of life He was talking about in this text. Will you receive it? Seventh, Jesus' life was a life of sacrificial service. He went about doing good. This week in the Wall Street Journal, there was an account of the old time religion, very long article. It was headed this way, an evangelical revival is sweeping the nation, and then this little line, but with little effect. The article says that as impressive as the statistics are that now over 40 million Americans claim to be born again, this is what they say. Combined with a highly individualized message is a historical tendency for evangelicals to shy away from involvement. Preacher in Wheaton, Illinois, stated in this article. You go to church, you buy the religious books, you watch the television programs. He said we have enough believers in Wheaton, Illinois to run the town, but we don't, because we don't want to. And what an indictment against the church. This week we had people who needed to ride to church. We were making some calls various areas of town to find. Some of the folk in the church to pick people up and bring them to church. You wouldn't believe the difficult times we had trying to find rides. Just involvement. Well, i got to do this. Right? We're going out to dinner after church, and we just don't have time. And on and on it goes. Where is our involvement? Where is this sacrificial service that was so much a part of Jesus' life? It's the seventh and last point that I learned as I studied the Gospels and the life of Jesus Christ, but I think it's the most important. The abundant life comes when you wrap yourself up in others, when you get outside of yourself and begin to give yourself to others. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were pressed of the devil, for God was with him. Jesus gave himself. Matthew 10, 20, verse 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Dear church, that's where, that's where the emptiness comes. That's where the lack of feeling comes when we fail to give what we have learned and fail to give what we have been given by God to the world. He wants us to be involved. Here's where the joy and peace comes from. Jesus came to do the will of his Father, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. In an article that will soon come out in the mailer that you'll receive, I said it's the will of God that every one of us have a ministry, that every one of us be involved, and we're to look for that ministry. We're to pray for that ministry and then step into that ministry under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the abundant life comes from. That's where happiness really comes from. Now, how do you experience the abundant life? Well, in case you didn't catch it, it's been woven through this whole message the measure in which I can know and experience his abundant life depends upon and is in exact proportion to the measure to which I am surrendered to him. That is the measure of that abundance, the measure of which I am surrendered to him. The question today is, will you yield yourself fully to him and let him fill you with himself? Now, I realize as I stand here right now that some of you are saying within yourself, but you don't know what I've done. Will God receive me when I've been so weak and I've made so many mistakes and so many failures? Well, my answer is, if he will not, then he's not God. One of our national magazines carried the story of three teenagers who had boarded a bus in New Jersey... And on that bus was a man sitting by himself who, when the bus stopped for rest stop, stayed on the bus. Upon coming onto the bus after the rest stop, one of the teenagers smiled at this gentleman sitting alone, rather poorly dressed. And the man gave him back a shy little smile. As the bus stopped later on for the second stop... One of the teenagers said to the gentleman sitting alone, Why don't you come off and stretch your legs? It'll do you good. At that invitation, the man got up and did get off the bus. Inside the rest stop, those three teenagers invited him to sit with them. One of the young people said, We're going to Florida for a weekend in the sun. It's nice in Florida, we are told. To that, the man said, Yes, it is. One of those young people said, Well... How do you know that? Well, he said, I used to live there. One of the teenagers replied, Well, do you still have a family and a house there? The man hesitated in answering. He said, Well, I I really don't know. So they inquired further, What do you mean you don't know? And then caught up with their warmth and their enthusiasm and kindness, he told them the story. Four years ago, he said, I was sentenced to federal prison. I had a beautiful wife and wonderful children. I said to her before going to prison, Honey, don't write to me and I won't write to you. The kids should not know that their dad is in prison. You go right ahead and find another man, somebody who will be a good father to those boys. She kept her bargain, he said, to those teenagers, and so did I. Until last week. When I knew for sure I was getting out of prison, I wrote a letter to the old address. It's just outside of Jacksonville. I said to her, if you're still living there and get this letter, and if there's a chance of you taking me back, here is how you can let me know. I will be on the bus as it comes through town. I want you to take a yellow handkerchief and hang it in the old oak tree right outside of town. Wow, those teenagers said, that's really something. They got back on the bus. Well, you can believe when they got 10 miles from Jacksonville, everybody was sitting on one side of the bus. (laughs) Their noses were pushed up against the windows of that bus. And they looked for the old oak tree. And just as they came to the outskirts of Jacksonville, there was that big oak tree. And the teenagers let out a yell and a scream, and they jumped out of their seats. And they hugged each other and danced down the middle aisle of the bus. All they could say was, "Wow, we look at it!" Well, there was not a yellow handkerchief on the tree, but there was a yellow bedsheet and a yellow dress and a little boy's yellow pants and yellow pillowcases. The whole tree was covered with yellow. And of course the song you have heard Hang a Yellow Ribbon on the Old Oak Tree came from that true story of a man who had to know that he was welcome back home that he could still be a husband and a father and that family wanted him to know not with one little yellow handkerchief but with a bed sheet and yellow pants and yellow pillowcases that indeed he was forgiven indeed he was loved he was welcome back home. And that's the way it is in the gospel. Do you not think that if a family would receive their own like that, how God would receive us today if we would learn to live the way Jesus lives and bring to him our sins and our mistakes and our failures, stop enjoying our past failures and just kind of dancing around them and wallowing in them, but to get out of them and say, in Jesus' name, I'm going to take John 10:10 as mine. Happiness is the abundant life. The thief comes to steal, to destroy, to kill. But Jesus has come to give me fullness of life, and I take it today. I'm no longer going to be a toy in the hands of the devil. I'm no longer going to be someone that is pushed around by every circumstance. I'm going to take the abundant life that Jesus has promised. And I'm going to follow the admonition of his own life and have a relationship with the Father that's moment by moment and meaningful and powerful. It's your opportunity today to come out of sadness and despair and discouragement and defeat. It is not God's plan for you to live in defeat, to live in poverty. He wants you to live in a place of victory and abundance and joy because that's where Jesus lived. And it's he who said, I have come to give you that same kind of life. Why not enter in? Let's bow our heads in prayer all over the building. And if you're listening by radio, I encourage you to bow your head where you are and pray with us that Jesus Christ in his power will come to you. Heavenly Father, in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus, we ask you to touch us right now. Take away our sins. Help us, Lord, to receive the power that is available through the Holy Spirit to live as we ought to live. Help us to rise up out of our mistakes and our failures, out of our sins, to live victoriously through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. While our heads are bowed and everyone who wants that, maybe you're a backslider, maybe you've once known the Lord, but today you know that not well with your soul. Jesus Christ is waiting for you to come. Perhaps you've never known Jesus in a personal way. You can know him personally. And I want to pray for you because the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a man in right standing with God avails much. Would you raise your hand up and say, Pastor, that's me. I need the abundant life. And I believe Jesus is the answer. God bless you over here to my left. Back over here, too, in this section. Several hands here in this section. God bless you. Yes, keep raising them up. I need Jesus Christ in my life. Up in the balcony, thank you. I see your hand up there. To my left, thank you over here. God bless you. Keep raising them up. If I've not seen them yet, raise them now and say, Jesus, I come. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you over here. God bless you under the balcony to my right. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. God bless you, son. Down here, I see your hand. God bless your heart. Jesus is here. Without breaking the reverence of this moment, please stand together for a moment. Everybody's standing. I want my staff to go to the front, and I want those of you who are seeking the abundant life You're trusting Jesus to meet you. I want you to step out of where you're standing. Get into the aisle. I have a feeling that once your foot goes into motion, there's going to be a release. And we're going to sing coming home, coming home. And then we'll have a prayer together. Come from all over the building. In the balcony, the stairways will lead you right down. Jesus waits for your coming.